Well, back in the early 2000s, I was approached by someone at my old high school, St. Joe Christian School, and they asked me to help, yes, SJC. They asked if I would help referee a youth basketball tournament to raise money for some type of local charity. I loved basketball, I still do. I played in elementary school, middle school, high school, and so I agreed to help out for this good cause. Little did I know what I was getting myself into. That Saturday morning, I was screamed at by angry parents who told me I was blind, horrible, stupid, ignorant, and the worst referee they'd ever seen in their life. These were parents of elementary kids who were literally like losing their mind because a call didn't go in favor of their third grade son or daughter. And it was literally one of the top two, three worst experiences of my life. And I vowed, honestly, to never again referee any type of athletic event. So for those of you that are refs, man, props to you. You got thick skin. I'm pretty sure that I was the sole inspiration behind this created meme here. Refs, we make your team lose. (laughs) I think the parents and coaches at that tournament saw me, and I was the inspiration for that. And I know that some of the coaches and parents that were at that tournament are here today. And so I want you to know that I've forgiven some of you, but not all. Those wounds cut deep. I know it's been 12 to 15 years, so God's still working on me to forgive you for that one. And if you were thinking about approaching me today to ref your tournament next weekend, forget about it. Not going to happen. Two things stood out to me from that morning years ago. One, I learned that people are crazy, legitimately crazy. And two, I learned that from a very young age, it's ingrained in kids, it's ingrained in our children to succeed, to be the best, to be the star, to rise to the top, and to win. And if those kids wanted to be praised, they had to prove their worth on the court. And if they didn't prove their worth, they were kind of frowned upon or rejected, and just eventually they went unnoticed. And it's this idea that we have, in order to receive approval and affirmation from people, we have to give them a reason to do so. We have to give them a reason to give us that approval and affirmation. And this, this plays itself out quite frequently in our daily lives. You know, some students, they feel the pressure to get good grades. And if they don't, they fear their parents are going to shun them or reject them. The pressure that society puts on a lot of people that we buy into to buy that bigger house that we think we need so that we can gain some respect and look like we're really successful even though we're in debt way over our heads. Uh, The pressures that young women feel to look like Photoshop supermodels, and if they don't, then somehow they're afraid a man is never going to pursue them or want them in the way that they desire. Those are just a few. (laughs) I know you guys can think of many more. Sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, We live with this false belief that we've got to prove our worth in order for them to love and, you know, affirm us. And I think this has played over in our relationship with Christ. And so today we're going to examine this lie from Satan that we've got to prove our worth. And so today we're going to examine the lie that God's love for us diminishes when we fail to honor him. Anyone ever believe that lie? That when we mess up, God somehow stops loving us a little bit. It's that lie that Satan whispers, hey, you messed up, 
there's no hope anymore. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to Ephesians 2. We're going to um, dive into this a little bit. <clears throat> it's page 1066 if you're using a pew Bible. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, there are so many rich truths in this passage, we don't have time to dive into every single one of them, but there are a few that speak to kind of this topic that I want us to highlight. So just from this short passage alone, we learn the following truth. So check this out. Verse 4, because of his great love for us, God made us alive with Christ. Verse 5 says, we've been saved by God's grace. God raised us up with Christ. Verse 8, again, if you didn't get it the first time, we've been saved by God's grace. Salvation is a gift from God. We did nothing to deserve it, and we're not saved by our good works. So what stands out to you guys when you read that list? Keep that up there. What stirs inside you when you read those truths? Let's get some feedback for a minute. What maybe stands out to you guys or stirs inside you when you read those truths? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're not in control of having to work to gain his favor or approval. Good. What else? What stands out or maybe stirs inside you when you read that? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Jake said they didn't have exclamation points back then. In the Greek, so, you know, so they repeated it twice. We're saved by God's grace. That's good. Anything else? Randy. We're not saved by our good works. Good intentions. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing good in us 
to get saved, even if our intentions or motives are good. None of those save us. Yeah, that's good. God's love isn't dependent on our good deeds. And here's the kicker. If you don't listen to anything else I say today, listen to this. And if our good deeds didn't earn God's love, then our shortcomings won't decrease God's love. If our good deeds can't earn God's love, then our shortcomings won't decrease God's love. Now, there might be consequences to your failures, like we talked about last week, but it's not going to decrease Christ's love for you. And that's a huge paradigm shift, I think, from the way that many Christians live. I think the majority of Christians are pretty well aware of, you know, the fact that they're not saved by their good works or their good deeds. Most Christians I know are aware of how messed up they are, how arrogant, lustful, greedy, whatever it might be. I think the bigger issue for the majority of Christians is struggling with believing that God doesn't love us when we fail to honor him. And this isn't a new struggle. Bible characters, many Bible characters, I know, had to wrestle with this. If you think of, for example, the disciple Peter. And many times, if you read throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, Peter is ranked as the top dog, right? He's kind of the first of the disciples listed often. He was one of Jesus' closest friends, And yet, he made a lot of mistakes, right? We know at one point Jesus asked him to walk on water. Peter didn't have enough faith, and so he started to sink in front of all the disciples. We know that Jesus rebuked Peter. Paul rebuked Peter. At one point, Jesus actually called Peter Satan. That's pretty intense because he didn't have the mind of God. And then Peter's most famous failure was when he denied Christ three separate times on the same night that he was crucified. And scripture says that he wept bitterly after his third denial. When he heard the rooster crow, it said Jesus looked him in the eyes and he started to weep. And we can't even fathom probably the guilt and the shame that he carried with himself that night because he was one of Jesus' closest friends. And on the night when he needed him the most, Peter wouldn't even acknowledge that he was friends with him or associated with him. And you know that he had to question if God would still love him. If his Lord would love him the same after denying him publicly three separate times in the same night. And just like Peter and every single one of you, I grew up in a flawed family. All my teachers, right, and mentors were sinful. My classmates, my neighbors, my friends were all full of pride and selfishness and lust and greed, you name it. And I was the exact same way, and I still am. And I learned from an early age that when I did well at something, I was praised. When I performed a good basketball game, people patted me on the back. Hey, way to go, man, making all those three-pointers, good job. When I played a horrible basketball game, I got pats on the back, but it was more like for pity, right? Everybody, anybody ever got some pity pats on the back? Yep. Some of you athletes, I got a lot of those kind of pity pats, not being praised. When I aced an exam, for those of you that were in high school with me, wasn't very often, my teachers were proud, right? When I failed an exam, they were disappointed and they told me, come on, Justin, you're better than this. You got to try harder. You can do better. 
I also quickly learned we live in a world of constant comparison. I saw that some kids had a lot more money than I did, and that didn't seem fair. Some kids were better looking or more talented or more popular, and so I started to question maybe what was wrong with me. Why was I not on that level? Even when kids were praised, I would question why I wasn't praised the same amount. What made me somehow less praiseworthy? And in a world filled with so much comparison and competition, it's hard to believe that a love actually exists that isn't based on our performance. It's hard to believe that a love exists that is not based on our performance. I also learned through my childhood experience that when I let someone down or when I wronged someone, they didn't want to speak to me. It's common, especially you know, with high schoolers, when someone wrongs you or when a friend hurts them, they say, hey, go away. I don't want to talk to you right now. I don't want to see you get out of my face. Go away. I'm kind of done with you for now. And I let those real life experiences, and I'm sure some of you had, creep into the way that I view God. I felt when I sinned, when I knew I messed up, I thought God was going to treat me and that he viewed me the same way. Go away. Don't look at me. You make me sick. I'm frustrated in you. Get away from me. There have been times in my life where I've actually, my view of God was I pictured him in the same room with me, standing in the same room with his head facing the ground. And my image of him when I failed was that he was so disappointed and disgusted and frustrated at me that he couldn't even look me in the eye. And when your view of the God who is supposed to be the God of love is that he is pointing the finger in you every time you mess up in disappointment, it doesn't give you much joy. It doesn't give you much hope or much to look forward to. And this is an easier trap to fall into for those of you that I know who are kind of like me. You're insecure. Maybe some things happened to you in your childhood. You have a low self-esteem. Or maybe you're a people pleaser by nature. This type of thinking feeds into our insecurities and our lack of self-worth. And it's a perpetual cycle that leads to destruction. And Satan knows it. And he will do everything in his power To make you, to make us believe that our love, that God's love for us is dependent upon our good deeds. Henry Nouwen had this to say about this issue. It's kind of a big quote, but it's so good. He said, over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am a nobody. My dark side says I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, 
forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. And being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. What does a person look like who is fully confident of their worth in Christ? I want to get some feedback from you guys. What does a person look like who is fully confident of their worth in Christ? They know how much they're loved by God. How does someone like that live? How does someone, what do they look like? Someone fully confident of their worth in Christ. What do you guys think? Yes, Kelsey. Yeah, their faith and understanding of God's love is constant. No matter what life might throw at them, it doesn't change. Yeah, that's good. What else? How does someone who's fully confident of their worth in Christ live? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're humbled. Yeah, they're not a teaching seekers because they know how much they've been forgiven or been accepted by God. Sure. Ooh, way in the back. Yes. Gigi. Sure. Yeah, she said that someone like that is, you know, courageous in relationships, meaning when life gets tough, when you understand how much you've been loved and accepted, you're much easier to pass that on and work for healthy relationships. Good. Anyone else? Chris. Chris is struggling to wrap his head around someone who can be <laughs> fully confident. Sure. Yeah. Anyone else? Randy. Sure. Yeah. 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 Understanding how loved you are by God takes any type of judgment out that you could pass on to anyone to where you can love yourself and pass that to others. One more, Brad. Because of the amount of forgiveness they understand, they're able to extend that right away and able to understand 
Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, someone under, under, understands their worth is, can go through life in confidence of what God has done for them, and people are drawn to them because that's very compelling and appealing when someone knows how much they've been forgiven. Yeah. Good. We forget the voice of God that calls us his beloved children when we start believing the lie that tells us we're unlovable. And we're unable to hear the Father's voice that tells us we're loved and accepted when we start believing the lie that tells us we're worthless. Now some of you here today are on the opposite end of the spectrum, and I'm going to speak to you guys for a little bit. Some of you here today aren't people pleasers, you're not insecure, and you don't have a low self-esteem at all. you got quite the other problem. And you know who you are. You might not struggle with feeling as though you've let God down when you fail. Except for you're smiling. You know who you are. You might not struggle with feeling as though you've let God down, but perhaps you feel as though with you let yourself down when you sin or when you make mistakes. See, some of us, like myself, don't think highly enough of ourselves. Some of us think too highly of ourselves. And oftentimes, maybe not every time, but I think when Christians feel they've let themselves down when they sin or when they fail, it's because they view them, they have a too high of a view of themselves. So for example, if someone is a performance-driven person, performing well means everything to them, right? I mean, life or death depends on how well they perform And if they mess up or stumble in an area, they become filled with frustration and disappointment in themselves for how poorly they performed or they handled that situation, right? And they're unable to serve and love people because they're so self-absorbed in their own failure and disappointment that they can't see past themselves. How do we respond to our shortcomings? How do you respond? How does our view of God or ourselves change when we make mistakes? Oftentimes, I think it breaks down into two categories for most people. On this end, we have the defeatist mentality. This is kind of how I'm wired. I know many of you are. I've had a lot of conversations. A defeatist person with a defeatist mentality, you know, when you mess up, when life gets hard, they say, what's the point of trying, right? I'm just going to mess up again. I know God's got to be disappointed in me. I've just failed him again. I keep sinning in this area. There's no hope. I'm just going to throw in the towel. That's the defeatist mentality. And over here we have the overconfident mentality. Overconfident person says, you know, you know, when they fail, they say, you know, I can fix my mistakes on my own. I can right this situation. I can smooth it over with my words or wisdom. Don't worry, God. I got this. Right? That's kind of an overconfident person. So on the left, we've got the defeatist who thinks everything's horrible, their pet's heads are falling off, right? Everything's terrible. And on the right, overconfident, I got this, God, I can fix this on my own. Don't worry, I'm good. And both sides are dangerous ways to respond to failure. Both sides are dangerous ways to respond to failure. So where is the healthy middle ground? Where's the healthy middle ground in responding to our mistakes? And I think Pastor Tim Keller gives great insight into the healthy middle ground when he says this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ 
than we ever dared hope. Take a minute and read that again to yourselves a few times in silence, because that is rich. So the defeatist person is typically pretty good at recognizing that first part, right? They know how flawed they are. They beat themselves up, right, all the time. They feel they've let God down. They need to believe and be reminded that they are more loved in Jesus Christ than they could ever fathom and that their mistakes are not going to change God's love for them or make him love them any less. And for the overconfident person, they may believe that God loves and accepts them But they need to truly understand to the core of their being how sinful and flawed they are. And how desperately they need a savior to meet them where they are. And offer healing and freedom from the chains of pride, arrogance, or even self-righteousness. Author Jerry Bridges also gives some really good insight into this with the quote that I'm sure many of you have heard. To the defeatist... He says, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And to the overconfident, he says, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And regardless of the way that we view ourselves or God in our moments of failure, we each have to understand that we have both an individual responsibility and a communal responsibility to combat the lies of the enemy. We're going to start with the individual responsibility. We've got to consider what has worked and what hasn't worked in the ways that we respond to our failures or our mistakes in life. Some of us have never even considered how we respond when we mess up or when we make mistakes, and so this is a good time to start and to start wrestling with this, perhaps for the first time. So for me personally... I had to take some very specific steps to combat the lies that Satan has fed me most of my life that told me I was unlovable, that I was pathetic, that people were looking down on me, and that I was always going to disappoint people. One of the things I had to do, this may seem extreme for some of you, but I had to type up a sheet of paper, and I actually brought this with you to show you guys this morning. I put this together, I think, four years ago, and I titled it Freedom Thoughts. And what I did was I put together a list. I did a bunch of research. I put together a list of nine verses that speak to the reality that I'm no longer a slave to fear or worry or condemnation and that I don't have to be filled with depression or constantly beat myself up because of what Christ has already done in me. So some of the verses that I needed to reflect on, one was Galatians 5.1, is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and don't let yourselves be yoked again, be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Another one was 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and of self-control. And then I knew I needed to hear this, Romans 8.15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to God's sonship. 
It was my individual responsibility to do the work, to research those verses, so that when times came, which they come often for me, that's my weak area, and Satan knows it. When voices started to tell me I was pathetic, there was no hope, I could pull that document on my computer, pull it out of my desk, and I could say, that's not true. I'm loved. I don't have to live in fear. This is a lie. Satan, you're a liar. Here's what's true of me, that I'm accepted more than I can even fathom. Something else I had to do was I had to meet with some people in my, my life who would say things to me that fed into my insecurities. These were friends. Specifically, some of them, there were three things they would joke about in my life and my past. And when they would say those things, it would take me down dark roads of thinking. And I told them, I said, hey, you've got to stop saying these three things or we're just not going to be able to hang out anymore because <laughs> I can't take it anymore. And thankfully, they agreed and we have a good friendship. And they don't bring those things up anymore because they know where those comments take me. I had to get counseling too. I think we all need counseling. Wherever summer is, shout out for summer. A little free promotion right there. I've met with three different counselors throughout different seasons of my life to work through some of this stuff when I started believe to believe the lies. And then I had my communal responsibility once I found some victory in my unhealthy thought patterns. And my communal responsibility was to help people who had some of the same struggles. I had a couple different men, some of them younger than me, around the same age, who were believing some of the same lies. Lies that told them they were pathetic, that there was no hope, that they were a horrible friend, they were a horrible father, they were a terrible husband, and they should just die. Because there was no reason for them to be alive. It would be better for their family if they just weren't here anymore. And once I gained some confidence in what was true of how loved and accepted we are, I was able to pass that on to them and say, dude, that's a lie. You are not a failure. This life is not going to be better for your wife if you were dead. That is a lie from Satan. You are loved and accepted. You are his pleasing aroma. You've got to believe it. And so by God's grace... Only by God's grace, I was able to combat the enemy through God's word while also helping a few people at the same time, kind of struggling with some similar issues. Every one of us that calls ourselves a follower of Christ has an individual and communal responsibility to combat the lies of Satan and to speak truth to each other. And when we communicate to others, we've got to speak to the heart of who they really are. Our job as a church, as a community of believers, is to remind people what's true of them, of how loved and valued they are, and as Bob talked about not too long ago, that their life matters. People need to hear that. Their life matters, and it has nothing to do with how well they perform. Our job is also to cast vision for people of who they could be and how they could be used. If you think of the disciple Peter, Jesus called him the rock long before he was ever the rock of the church. He gave Peter an identity, and he saw who he could be before it actually ever happened or unfolded. Jesus also told his disciples they would go on to do greater things than he would ever do, which is mind-blowing. But he knew they weren't going to get it right every time. They were going to mess up, right? Just like every single one of us, he didn't care if they were slick or polished. All he asked was that they were faithful and obedient to following him. 
We've got to sow vision into one another. So if you know someone that would be an incredible teacher or pastor or mentor or friend or coach or leader, tell them that. I talk to so many people who say, man, that guy would be so good at doing that. You know, have you told them? No, that'd be awkward. Who cares? Speak existence and life into each other. That two-minute awkward conversation that you're afraid of could change the course of their life. Man, you're the first person that's ever said that. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my life to that. Because maybe other people were afraid to say something. Speak the truth to each other. We've got to help people see who they could be. Because this life will beat the crap out of us every day, won't it? We've got to be reminded of what's true and how we could be used for God's kingdom. So what do you need to do to combat the lie that tells you God's love diminishes when you fail? What do you need to do to combat the lie that tells you that you can fix all your mistakes, you can make right everything that you've done wrong on your own strength and power? Do you need a list of scripture like me that you type up that you can just whip out kind of as your arsenal to combat the enemy in those moments? Do you need to find a Christian friend who you can meet with or who's going to call you and check in on you and see how you're handling life or your failures or whatever it might be? Maybe you found some victory in unhealthy thought patterns. If you found some victory, then the question for you becomes, what do you need to do to help someone else struggling with this? What role is God asking you to play in someone's life to remind them of who they are? and what they could be, and how God wants to use them. And combating lies isn't something we're going to find victory in overnight. I'm sorry, right? When we've been thinking a certain way for 15, 20, 30 years, it's going to take time to rewire our thought patterns to line it up with God's Word. We can only take it a day at a time, because tomorrow has enough worries of its own, right? What is God asking you to do today to combat the lies of the enemy? Let's pray together. God, you are so good. Jesus, I thank you so much for your love that we can't even fathom. God, whether we are someone who has a defeatist mentality or an overconfident mentality, God. Help us to realize how flawed and broken and sinful we truly are, but yet how loved and accepted and chosen we are as well, God. Jesus, help us to be proactive whatever stood out to people today from what we've talked about or sang about, God. Help us to make it our individual responsibility to find healing and growth and freedom in this area, and the way that we respond to our failures, the way that we view ourselves, God. Help us to put in the work, God, and not just put it on the side, Lord, because we'll be busy doing other things, caught up in the chaos of life. And God, help us to see the potential in others, God, and help them with their journey and speak truth to them and pass on the things that we've learned and received from you, God, because we need each other in this life. It's too hard to live as lone rangers. 
So Jesus, we love you. We acknowledge that you are good. And you deserve all our praise and gratitude and admiration. And every breath that we breathe, God, is because of you. And we pray that you would be honored in everything that we do and say today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you go ahead and stand with us as we sing one last song?